Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. I wonder if you will permit me this week, dress listeners, to uncover my very own fashion history mystery regarding a centuries-old perfume-making process known as enfleurage. And to get the answers, I actually had the pleasure of following today's guests into the fields of the Taos Land Trust in Taos, New Mexico, where I was invited along with my husband to observe and document it firsthand. It was very cool. I'm super jealous, Cass, because you got to hang out with Sebastian and Robin. They are the women behind Dryland Wilds, a botanical beauty brand where no synthetic fragrances are used, no artificial ingredients. Their products are 100% all natural, casts. And I happen to know that you are a big fan of their deodorant, right? Yes. And our listeners might remember during our Don't Sweat It fashion history mystery about the history of deodorants a few episodes back when I gave a shout out to my all-time favorite, all-natural and aluminum-free deodorant by none other than Dryland Wilds. I am telling you, this stuff is magic. And Cass is bringing me a sample soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you too will be converted to the, <laughs> to the joy of Dryland Wilds deodorant. And while that may be their best-selling product, Cass, the duo are also known for their desert perfumes, which are hand-forged and crafted from dryland plants, which are native to New Mexico. Yes, they have this fantastic line of products that include tinted lip balms, soaps, and oils. And the best part is not only is it all natural, it's gathered sustainably and consciously of the environment. So without further ado, I invite you to join my Enfleurage experience. Enjoy! And can you tell us a little bit about the ancient art of creating perfume and its yeah, origins? Totally. And, um, and then the more contemporary Enfleurage process? Absolutely. So, you know, when people think, oh gosh, what's the world center of perfume? Most people jump to France, to Grasse, but it goes way, 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 way earlier than that. Some people think 7,000 BC um, in India and in the Middle East, um, people were using oils to capture the smell of flowers and resins. It's what we call maceration. We do the same thing where you take either dried plant material or very antibacterial fresh plant material and you switch it out quickly and you uh, fill a jar with the plant material, you pour oil over it, you let it sit anywhere from, our quickest one is maybe three hours, because some flowers are gonna go off very, very quickly. Then you strain that out and then you reinfuse it with the same, the same flower material. So people have been doing this for a long, long time. Isn't very, there a really story, beautiful story about Cret, right, or Crete? Oh yeah, absolutely, Cyprus. Yeah, Cyprus, oh, Cyprus. Yeah. okay. So Cyprus is, um, people go, oh, it's Shipro, right? People are familiar with that type of perfume mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And the reason a Shipro is called a Shipro is because Cody went to the Isle of Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And he saw what was happening there and had been happening for thousands of years. The actual, the oldest perfume factory in the world is located there and is about 4,000 years old. And the reason that it was built, that there was a need for a perfume factory on Cyprus was because that was the site of the temple of Aphrodite. That was the location where she came out of the ocean in the shell, landed on the beach, and all the people that followed that goddess would go there to bring her offerings. 
That's so cool. And one of the offerings was perfume. And yes, so she's also the goddess of perfume. So they would bring her these beautiful, sweet-smelling perfumes and incenses that was an even older version of perfume that they would either burn at her altar or just leave the perfume at her altar. So there's something really sacred about making perfume as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's always been a very, very sacred process and a sacred product. And only, gosh, in this, <laughs> the last couple decades, has perfume become something cheap and noxious as synthetics sort of take over the field. And we have perfumed garbage bags and perfumed dish soap and perfumed toilet paper and things that are no longer a sacred, beautiful thing. But, you know, you go, oh, why does my garbage bag have to smell like this? I know, and I never <laughs> realized that how harmful synthetic perfume is to the environment. Yeah. I mean, you think you're spraying something on your body that you don't see, but it's actually incredibly... When that washes off your body, right, and yep. gets into the water. That's exactly right. It can yeah. be found in animals, yeah. in the ocean. It's specifically one of the big um, problems. Um, it's uh, an ingredient called a musk ketone that are used in almost every single synthetic perfume because it helps anchor a smell and make it last. If you've ever noticed with the synthetic perfume versus the botanical perfume, the synthetics will last and last and last. You can spray yourself and, you know, 24 hours later you're like, and then there it is. Yeah. Versus the botanical, a few hours later, you're like, where did it go? It changed and then it left. Yeah. With those musk ketones, those synthetic musks, mm -hmm. they're built not to degrade. And so when we spray them on our body or we wash with body wash that have them in it, and it's really everywhere, it's very prevalent. Then, like you said, when you wash your hands or you take a shower, it goes down the drain. It ends up in the rivers and the ocean. And now they're finding it in ocean fish. They're finding it in human milk, breast milk. Wow. And it's a terrible hormone disruptor. And it's tied to all sorts of really pretty rough stuff. So, um, so yeah, we, we've done a whole episode about sustainability and fashion. We talk about it a lot on the podcast. But I don't think many of us would consider these kind of products that you think just disintegrate or go away actually stay with us yeah. in all the same ways that the more visible plastics, et cetera, yeah. um, are harmful to the environment. Yeah. And just real quick, can you go back to 17th century France and yeah. tell us about the beginning of the entourage process that you and Robin now practice today? Absolutely. So the reason that it started in grass was because they were a famous leather tanning a town in medieval Europe. And that's what they were famous for. They made leather. And if you've ever been to an area that tans leather, it smells terrible. It's a pretty rough smell, yeah. right? <laughs> so when um, they started to make gloves for nobility, the nobility wanted them to smell good. And so they thought there was um, an enterprising glove maker in Grasse who made the first scented leather gloves. Wow. And at that time, a big popular one was civet as a perfumery ingredient. While we're a botanical perfumery, we do not use civet. The only animal-based ingredient we use in our perfumes, we use bee products. So we'll do, we'll make honey absolute and beeswax absolute, but we don't use civet. So what is civet? Civet is actually an extraction from the musk gland of okay. the civet cat. It's okay. like um, if you've ever had a male cat who's not neutered or was neutered not completely, he'll spray. Okay. So it smells, it's like that musky cat urine smell. Okay. Um, but that was, that was all the rage. <laughs> and actually, <That> <laughs> and it's interesting because with botanical perfumes, 
those animalic smells can do wonders for your perfume. They can make them smell in small quantities incredible. But the way they treat those cats, they would lock them up and just, you know, milk their glands for an entire year before they die. I mean, for their entire life before they die. And it was just... Similar process for beavers, yeah, too. Yeah, same yeah thing I don't historium. think people realize how much beaver extracted <laughs> products are in things we drink to this very day. Yeah. It's like anything lemon-flavored or... Yep. Yeah, yep. it's pretty incredible. So, 17th century France, scented gloves. Scented gloves. Okay. And that, they became such a hit that all of the nobility wanted them. And that actually provided the springboard for Grasse to turn into this amazing perfume center that it is today. Okay. And at that time, basically, the perfume houses that started, because there was such a high demand for this... Mm-hmm. They would have to own their own fields, grow their own flowers. Um, They would do the entire operation. And they were the ones who came up with the cold enfleurage process. Okay. What's called hot enfleurage, which is really a maceration in oil, Mm -hmm. either with heat um, or a maceration without heat. That is not, that's been done for long, 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 long time, longer than And maceration is capturing the scent, the molecules. That's right, in oil. In In oil. oil. Yeah. So that was the beginning. And so they'd have these beautiful fields of, you know, jasmine and lavender and um, neroli. And what inspired you guys to start doing this process? (laughs) Like, I mean, I think many of us have taken up soap making every now and then, or, you know, you make your own lip gloss. But (laughs) like to do this ancient art of creating perfume, what was the impetus behind that? It was really a love for the plants. And when you're working with fresh flowers, there's very few flowers that you can capture the scent of, like in your distiller. So there's there's very few flowers that can be captured with um, a heat-based process. Like roses do well when we distill roses. That's great. However, with the scale we have, you know, we have a 60-liter copper alembic. And... The size of distiller you would need and the amount of roses you would need, for example, to create a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of essential oil from that is beyond our capacity. So, you know, our distiller is about as tall as I am, but, you know, I would need something three times that size to be extracting essential oil from roses. We extract hydrocells from roses. Most flowers, like today we're looking at thistle or we work with Russian olive. Um, we work with a lot of invasive, beautiful, delicate flowers. If you put them into the liquid oil, they smell, um, it's like a muddy green smell. Even if it's a very, very quick maceration, mm-hmm. it just, you have this off smell immediately. And it's the cold on fleurage, which was the only way. And I had read about it, I don't know, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I used to be obsessed with just weird old pharmacy books. And I ran into the idea there a long, long time ago. And... When we were going, okay, you know, we've tried tinctured absolutes with these flowers, we've tried really quick macerations, we've tried distillation, nothing is working. That's when we started to experiment with this. And so we read up everything we could find about it and through years of trial and error, um, because you can mold a chassis like that. So all of your work, you know, you can have 20 hours of work just down the drain um, with one misstep. Like grow mold in the chassis, mm-hmm. right? That's and right. so this climate in New Mexico is probably better suited to it's this ideal. sort of... Totally. I think that if we were in Florida or Baltimore or yeah. even, you know, Texas, uh-uh. <laughs> even California, 
it's um, we're really blessed by the dry climate um, because the flowers won't mold. And as it is, we'll change out a chassis every three days or so, depending on the flower type we're using. But it's that's how we that's how we came upon it because we were desperate to capture these exact scents, and yeah. we had been really sort of disappointed by other folks we'd run into who are like, oh my gosh, you know, they're like, oh, here's my violet perfume. This has real violets. So I was like, how did you do that? Did you want flourish? Yes. And then yeah. you find out, no, you didn't. And this is, you smell it, you want to whiff, you're like, ah, gross, that's synthetic violet. Yeah. So just thinking, why aren't people doing this anymore? Because it's a total pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. But also, it's just, it's beautiful. There's nothing like it. So they used to think that it was the soul of the flower that would be captured in the fat in on florage. When the flower would wilt, the soul would escape and oh, be, so be caught in the oil. And now, you know, people frame it more in terms of aroma molecules. So as the flower wilts, the aroma molecules are released. And just like if you keep a stick of butter in your fridge uncovered, you're going to have an enflorage of all the gross smells in your fridge. <laughs> this um, works by the same principle, so that all those little aroma molecules which get released into the air, if it's in the chassis, they'll get caught into the fat because they bond with the fat. And the chassis is this thing. Yeah, so we you're have... Gonna, well, I mean, I'm going to go through the process, but you're going to put flowers, the flowers or whatever you're using as your fragrance Yes. in here. Uh-huh. Then you're going to put the oil on top of it? You put the oil on first. So right now we're melting it so that we can pour it. And then uh, we will let it cool and solidify. And then once it's solid, that's when we'll take our flowers and press them into the solid fat on the chassis. And then uh, usually, I mean, we have like stacks and stacks of chassis. We're just giving an example of one. But then what, once they are all laid with the flowers, then you stack them on top of each other. Um, the chassis. the chassis on top of each other and then that the aroma molecules from the flowers will then be caught by the solidified and with the um with the chassis the reason that it works it's not totally airtight of course but it's pretty you know it's a pretty good seal mm-hmm. and so if there's a big gap then all of those little aroma molecules would just fly out it's kind of interesting because when we think like if you just go ahead and smell your hand you think oh gosh, I'm smelling my hand, right? Yeah. You're actually smelling the airspace above your hand. So whenever we smell anything, we're smelling these little molecules that we read as fragrance that float all through the air and they volatilize, they get airborne at different temperatures, which is what makes the top note or the heart note or a base note in a perfume. So the air is totally thick with aroma molecules. As humans, we can only pick up some of them. If you have a dog, they pick up way more. (laughs) But they choose different perfumes, of course. But with the chassis, why it works is that you have that little sealed airspace for those flowers to wilt and the molecules to be captured. And you have to do it again and again. Sometimes we'll charge a chassis up to 30 times. So it's a process that it's about um, a month, a month and a half per harvest. Something that we do that's a little different is that we make a lot of our perfume out in the field. So that means that we'll go, we'll bring our camping equipment, we'll drag it out into the mountains or the desert um, and set up camp and be prepared to be there for a good couple weeks, harvesting the flowers that's and making so the cool. perfume out there while we're camping. Wow. So it's it's a good life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what a beautiful way for you to commune in nature and you said you spend weeks camping to do this. I mean, it's incredible. 
When I think what's really interesting in, in learning this process, because, you know, we're a little bit different in terms of our perfumery because we're so focused on capturing the smells of New Mexico specifically. Um, so there are just really this process of getting to know each plant that we work with really intimately. And there are just some things that you can't get that true fragrance from any other way. And so it's just, it's a really intimate process, both in terms of our relationship with the plants, as well as just the time that it takes to really be true to that actual flower or plant. We're also trying to shine a little bit of, um, I don't know if it's a positive light, but it's that the idea that everything is sacred and everything does have a place, everything does have a purpose. So the plants that we work with a lot of the time, people hate them. I mean, we'll go to help people harvest them off their land so they don't have to use herbicides. But um, the anger and just like, oh, at these plants is you go, gosh, well, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a little projection. Yeah. Um, that's but. one of the coolest things about your business is you guys are using, one, you're doing it in a way that doesn't harm the environment in any ways. I know I've heard you talk about over-harvesting of mm -hmm. things like echinacea, yeah. but you're using plants that nobody necessarily wants and doing this really <laughs> beautiful thing with it because you don't just do perfume, you have many other products. Yeah, we um, have skincare products too, yeah. So cool. And it's fun. I love being able to find a use for something that's hated. And if you trace these plants back to the places that they came from, they were really sacred plants or important medicine mm. or perfume and they were beloved members of the community versus here, you know, if people have contests, you know, to see the roughest way you can kill a Russian olive after right. using Roundup and a bulldozer and a fire. Yeah. And you go, it's not necessary. Let's just, if we need to bring the ecosystem back into balance, mm -hmm. let's create economies that use these plants instead of just waste our time hating them. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, to create an essential oil, to do on plastic, you need a lot of plant material. And so if we're going to be using flowers, like using it something that's invasive, that there's plenty of people will gladly have us remove from their properties, that to me is a much more sustainable way of extracting these fragrances than using. Absolutely. Yeah. In our sort of philosophy, it's really like, well, how can we, through our business, actually make the wild spaces that we're working from or the, pro the properties that we're working on better than, you know, when we started rather than having a negative effect on it. Yeah, it's really a beautiful business model. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're plant dorks and we love New Mexico. We love just being out here hiking and it's like, that's what we want to to capture in our perfume. So we will literally work on, you know, a blend and then go out and smell the area mm -hmm. we're trying to replicate and see, okay, how true is this? And really create and encourage those connections to the wild spaces here as a way for people to really ground themselves in right. the places they're living in. And remind people about the beauty of, of nature and where we all come from. Yep. And so much of that's been lost. So Absolutely. It's really... And no matter, you know, where our ancestors are from, we all previously used to know all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's it's cool to be able to, to reconnect in those ways and to encourage others to do so as well. 
Cass, I'm just going to state for the record once again that I'm super jealous because it sounds like you all had quite the experience. I did. And these women are not only inspiring, they are so giving with their time and knowledge. I highly encourage our listeners to follow along on their Instagram page at Dryland Wilds, where they share wonderfully detailed videos and images Um, not only about the enfleurage process, but about all their processes, including their delicious recipes. Be sure to check out their full line of products on their website, which is drylandwilds.com, where you can also find a list of all of their wild workshops if you happen to be in New Mexico. Um, You can take classes such as Desert Botanical Perfumery and even accompany the duo on foraging walks. Sebastian and Robin, thank you so much for sharing your passion with us. That does it for us today, Dress listeners. Remember to tune in this Tuesday for our full-length episodes. And remember, we love hearing from you, so you can always email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com or DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will always find images accompanying each week's episode. At dress underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, you can also check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Bye. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.